Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And believe it or not, it is already June, which means a number of things. Um, And there's just been so much happening in the coastal space. So we want to bring on um, two experts today to catch us up on both the policy and the science side of coastal Louisiana. But of course, we can't, um, you know, start June without thinking about what that means in terms of uh, hurricane season. And, you know, like we've said in the past on this show, um, you always want to be prepared, you know, get a game plan, uh, do what you can to keep your yourself and your family safe, especially this year. We know we have a lot going on. Um, and, you know, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But Simone, you all had um, a webinar, right, with some emergency preparedness officials that you all um, kind of hosted as Restore Retreat. So what are some of the lessons that those folks shared for people that they should keep in mind as we start hurricane season? Yeah. So um, first of all, the um, the first time in uh, three or four months, right, I actually knew what the date was because <laughs> June 1st is such an important date in coastal Louisiana. It's also the first day that um, my kids started camp. So yeah, cheers to that. Um, but we we have been thinking about this for, um, you know, uh, for several weeks now that that this hurricane season could look different, right? In terms of evacuations, um, we already had two storms, uh, two name storms before the hurricane season even started. So we were really fortunate to have Ruby Douglas from the Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness walk us through um, some of their plans um, that have been established before, but how that also changes in this new COVID world. Um, So uh, it was commonly called Get a Game Plan, and so Ruby did and a really great presentation. She shared so many different resources. Um, We're hoping to have Ruby on in a future date, but um, handy things like apps um, that you can have on your phone, um, what kind of communications, redundant communication systems they have in place, um, you know, where to find the most current information, um, new shelter evacuation information about what you need to bring, including masks and how people might be separated in shelters. And so that was really good um, run through to have folks. We also had some folks on from the parishes as well talk about how things are different for them as well. Terrebonne started a new phased evacuation that they want to make sure gets um, that news gets out to folks as well. So we have that posted on the Restore Retreat website, which is restoreretreat.org slash coast. And you can um, easily go to the recording that we have as well as Ruby's presentation, even though we do want to have her on uh, a future episode. I know the city of New Orleans also is addressing it specifically as well. Yeah, I mean, there's always, you know, a number of ways that, you know, the city of New Orleans is getting prepared. But of course, with uh, COVID, but also with hurricane season, we realize there's a need to communicate and educate our kids, right, about storms and, and preparedness and, and why these things, you know, occur where we live. And I don't know, Simone, if you have memories, but I certainly have memories being little Jacques and evacuating Plaquemines Parish for storms. And, you know, oddly enough, this is a topic for a future uh, episode, but my family decided it was a good idea to evacuate to New Orleans. And we went to a hotel in New Orleans. Um, probably not the best move these days, um, but Anyway, um, a lot of the need to educate our kids about, you know, 
how we live here and how we confront some of the challenges um, such as hurricanes is really important. So Katie Grews, who works with our Restore the Mississippi River Delta group and Environmental Defense Fund, worked with the city of New Orleans um, and others on a coloring book um, that follows um, the adventures of Pearl the Pelican as she learns about storm preparedness and hurricane safety. Um, so there was a blog that we posted on our MississippiRiverDelta.org website that kind of highlights the coloring book, actually links to it. You can download it and print and kind of use it with your kids to color and um, learn about hurricane season, multiple lines of defense, all of those things. So yeah, we will maybe try to have Katie on a future show to discuss that process and, and the tool as well. That's one thing we learned too, Jacques, over these past couple of months is that it's important to communicate to kids, right, um, in a way that they understand, um, that they under, you know, understand that they could be scary, but there's some some safety assurances there as well. So I love that idea. I, I saw a sneak peek and it, the pictures are beautiful. I love the idea behind it too. So, but we got to talk about some real grown up stuff because I don't even know how you would communicate to kids what's going on in the Louisiana legislature right now. But uh, thankfully, we brought on one of our friends and colleagues to help us walk through some of what's going on during the regular session and the special session. Yeah, we're really excited. I don't think we've had Emily Foxton on the show before. It's her first time. Um, and Emily's been, you know, keeping her finger on the pulse of all that's happening um, in the legislature, certainly as they wrapped up their first regular session and now as they go into a special session. So welcome to Delta Dispatches, Emily Foxton, Policy Director with the Coalition of Restore Coastal Louisiana. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. So Emily, um, we have only a few minutes left of this segment, but first want to check in with you and, and see how you're doing and how are things with the Coalition of Restore Coastal Louisiana? You know, I'm doing pretty good. We're all um, obviously working from home. Luckily, the um, legislature does live stream all of its sessions, so I've been able to keep up from home and they've been implementing a number of changes so that people can interact with them virtually. So um, it's pretty much, you know, business as usual for me. So you've been very busily um, tracking, you know, what's happened in the in the regular legislative session of Louisiana's legislature, which actually wrapped up, was it yesterday? Um, so we want to get into that. Um, but um, can you explain? So they wrapped up their first regular session, but now they're in a special session. Let's just, where are they right now and what's going on? Right. So usually the, le- the regular session should have been from March to June. Um, so it would have been an 85-day session. Um, But because of COVID, basically what happened is they met for five days in March, and then they adjourned until May 4th. um, And then they met until June 1st. So instead of meeting for 85 days, they met for 33 days this session. So that's why there was a lot happening. Um, And because they met for, you know, that shorter period of time, they called themselves back into a special session because there were certain things that didn't get dealt with in the regular session, including the budget for the state, which is obviously incredibly important. So the special session started a minute after the regular session ended on June 1st um, and will run until June 30th. So I know one of the big things that our groups were tra- was tracking um, in this regular session, as we do every regular session, uh, right, is the Coastal Annual Plan, right? So that funds a lot of the work of coastal restoration and protection. Tell us a little bit about the Coastal Annual Plan and, and why, especially this year, it was a milestone year. Sure. So the annual plan is developed by CPRA um, 
It's a pretty big document. It provides an implementation schedule for projects. It IDs funding schedules. It IDs budgets for given projects. And it's basically um, a plan so that if CPRA receives money that it is expected to receive in a given fiscal year, it's a... um, it's an authority to spend that money. So they have to give the plan to the legislature and the legislature has to approve it. And then if the money comes in as expected to CPRA, then they have the approval to spend the funds on things that were listed in the annual plan. And am I correct in saying that um, this year, and I believe Restore Retreat did a blog about this as well, um, but that this year the outlook is for a billion dollars in spending over the next three years. Is that is that the first time that they've kind of hit that level of spending? It is. Um, and so, like I said, it, it is a um, estimate of what money they expect to receive. So, you know, right now they're expecting to receive a billion dollars. Um, and obviously that can change because of a lot of things, but um, the plan actually will um, approve the spending of that much money if the money does come in as expected. Well, Emily, we want to talk to you about specific projects that are included in the plan, but we're up against a break. Do you mind sticking with us through um, the commercial break? And then we'll talk about those projects. And then we had a couple of other uh, things that we're watching. Sure. Yeah. You're listening to Delta Dispatches, and we'll be right back. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And it is time for the Coastal Voice of the Week. And this week's Coastal Voice is Rebecca in Bossier City. Rebecca says, it's our home and our responsibility. The land and sea have been so good to us. It's past time for us to be good to her. And I could not agree with Rebecca more. There's certainly no time to lose um, reminder, you can go and submit your Coastal Voice of the Week at any time at RestoreTheCoast.org, and we'll share it um, in a future episode. So we're back with Emily Buxton, Policy Director with the Coalition of Restore Coastal Louisiana. Emily, welcome back. Um, you may know that we have a um, tradition on Delta Dispatches where every guest gets asked a fun question. So I do know that in the early days of your quarantine, you had a um, a four-legged fur buddy that you were fostering um, and taking care of. So um, as a dog owner and lover myself, I'm curious, what was your favorite place to walk your dog when you were fostering a dog? So, yeah, I was fostering a dog. His name was Petey, um, and he was a lot of fun. He was a puppy, about um, eight months old, so he had a lot of energy. Um, <laughs> he, um, he and I walked along uh, the streetcar route in St. Charles a lot, um, and he, he was more walking me than me walking him, but, um, we were on St. Charles a lot. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I remember seeing PD and video conferences and that's so awesome that you were able to foster, um, dogs and any, where can people go if they're interested in kind of learning how to do that or wanting to, to kind of foster a dog at some point? So I went through Take Paws Rescue. They're based in the New Orleans area, and um, they are bringing in hundreds of dogs every month um, since COVID began. So if you are interested in fostering a dog, um, they definitely would love your help. Or if you're interested in adopting, you can adopt the dogs that we've all been fostering. 
I love that too, Emily. Well, thank you for doing that. Uh, and thank you too for keeping your eye <laughs> on the Capitol. Um, I don't know how you can deal with a puppy in the Capitol at the same time. But um, right before the break, we were talking about the annual plan. I wanted, I wanted for you, if you could, please just mention a couple of priority projects that are included in the annual plan, just so people can know what kind of projects are being invested in. Sure. So um, we have a number of priority projects that are moving through the annual plan. They are all in um, different stages of development. So some of them are still in planning, some are in engineering and design, some are in construction. Um, This year, some of our priority projects that have moved into construction include um, the Northwest Turtle Bay Marsh creation. That was completed earlier this year, but it is being expanded through the Quipper program. Um, The Terrible Basin Barrier Island Beach Nourishment Um, That's one of our Barrier Island projects that is in construction currently this year. Um, And additionally, some of our diversions are in engineering and design this year in the annual plan, including the Moripaw diversion, which we did a lot of work on last year, um, as well as Mid-Baratarian and Mid-Bredon. It's great to see, you know, the progress on those projects and kind of like you said, with the expected um, annual expenditures of a billion dollars a year over the next three years, certainly you know, um, as we highlight always on the show, there's there's no time to lose. There's urgency, but it's also great to see that so many of these projects are kind of shovel ready and being implemented with urgency. So um, kind of on that note, I mean, one of the things that you all track very closely is funding and making sure that funding can go toward projects that are going to help restore and protect our coast, that are shovel ready, hey, that even help create jobs and stimulate the economy at a time when we really need that. So Um, There were some developments in the legislature this year um, around um, funding. So I realized there was one about surplus dollars, state surplus dollars, and those being threatened. So tell us a little bit about that and where that stands currently. Sure. So that would be House Bill 2. It's a budget bill that typically deals with capital outlay projects. And so in general, what happens is if the state has a surplus, the governor makes a list of things that he wants to spend those surplus dollars on. And so earlier this year, the governor made a list of um, of coastal projects um, that he wanted to spend state surplus money on. And so it was about $115 million for coastal projects. Um, Additionally, he did basically the same thing for the Department of Transportation as well. Um, But once uh, the session got in, um, when HB2 was released, it was amended to remove surplus dollars from both the coastal and the transportation funds so that the legislature could put most of that money into the state's budget stabilization fund. And that is because you know they're envisioning having a huge budget deficit this year because of COVID and because of the um, downturn in oil and gas prices. And so they wanted to put the money somewhere else. Um, and so you know, we obviously believe that spending money on the coast does invigorate the economy um, and that it is important, obviously, to protect and restore. And so we led a bit big advocacy push to get that money put back um, into the Coastal Trust Fund. Um, currently, House Bill 2 didn't pass in the, in the regular session. It was actually just up in the special session about an hour ago. Um, it passed its first committee. Um, but we still, you know, we still think that we might get that money back. We're just kind of keeping an eye on it. It will move during the special session. So within the month, we should see, you know, some sort of action on that bill. So Emily, if folks, um, this is the first time they're hearing about this or, or if they want to take action, is there an easy way for folks to have their voice heard? 
Yeah. So of course, um, you know, you can follow our um, website. We do release action alerts periodically about these issues. We did have an action alert for House Bill 2 um, a few weeks ago. Um, and of course, you know, if you, if you have a relationship with your legislature, le- legislator, um, you know, of course, reach out to them really anytime, not just during session, but just make it clear to them that, you know, coastal dollars are important and need to be protected. And that surplus money should be going to the coastal projects that they were originally designated for. And Emily, is it correct to say that, um, you know, some of those surplus dollars are actually used to help the state secure additional dollars right through the federal government? Correct. So one of the biggest um, expenditures in that surplus plan was for the West Shore levee project. And so this is a levee project that's being built by the Army Corps of Engineers um, right outside of um, the Orleans system. It would go through a few different parishes. Um, The reason that we've been following West Shore levee pretty closely is because the first one and a half miles of the levee will be built in conjunction with the Moripaw Diversion, which is a priority project of ours. And so if those two projects get funding around the same time, we can achieve real efficiencies in both projects and we can build both of them faster. So we do see it as a priority that the state get the money um, necessary to pay the Army Corps for their share of the West Shore Levy project so that we can then obtain funds and the authorizations to build more apply in conjunction with that project. Well, you know, just one reminder of how urgent it is to protect that funding. Um, And thank you for keeping us updated on it. And of course, we'll continue to watch it and let folks know if they have an opportunity to stand up to to protect coastal funding. One other uh, set of bills I want to talk about, we have a few minutes left, but um, they received a lot of attention in the media. Certainly, you had a lot of folks actually going to the Capitol to kind of issue comments were around um, the parish oil and gas lawsuits and um, what would happen there. So can you give us an update on the the bills that addressed that issue? I think it was SB 440, and then it was a different one at one point. So what's the status of those? And give us a quick rundown on what happened in this session. Sure. So for the folks that um, aren't aware of these lawsuits, um, a number of the coastal parishes filed lawsuits against oil and gas companies, alleging that they caused destruction in their parishes that weren't wasn't cleaned up, essentially. And so the parishes are trying to get money through these lawsuits from the oil and gas companies that caused the damage so that they can then restore their parishes. Um, the legislature decided that they wanted to get involved in this this year. And so they tried to pass a suite of bills that would have essentially killed the oil and gas lawsuits. Um, it's a little complicated the way they tried to do it, but um, they were the essential, um, you know, bottom line is that these bills wanted to kill those lawsuits. And so there was a lot of opposition to the bills by obviously the parishes that were um, filing these lawsuits, as well as folks like us who really believe that um, these lawsuits are best filed at our best, um, are best fixed in court and not in the legislature. And so there were two bills that we were really keeping track of. One was Senate Bill 359. Um, and so that was the main bill that would have killed the lawsuits. Um, there was a lot of opposition um, in the Senate um, when that when that bill made it through, especially through the committees. And so the author finally decided that he wasn't going to pursue that bill any further in the regular session. Um, and so what happened was Senate Bill 440 was amended in committee to make it to make it essentially the exact same thing as Senate Bill 359. And so that happened on the House side once it had already passed the Senate. And so there was a lot of you know opposition and people angry when that happened, obviously. Um, 
And so the final result of that was that that bill was also removed from the um, special, from the regular session. And neither bill will make it through. Okay, so as of now, they're on pause, but we'll continue to watch. Well, Emily, we're about to head into a break, but thank you so much. And you'll keep us updated on future issues with the legislature. We'll be right back. From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And we are back with our, I think, all-time leading guest, first guest. Close. I don't even think it's close. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) I like to think, like, you know it's going down and we need to, like, do some myth-busting and set the record straight when we have to have Dr. Alicia Renfro on to break it down for us. So it's one of those times we caught up on the policy side with Emily Buxton And now we're going to catch up on the science side with Alicia Renfro, staff scientist with National Wildlife Federation. Welcome back, Alicia. Thank you for having me. So, Alicia, we had you on our first episode of Delta Dispatch, stay-at-home version of Delta Dispatches. Um, Hopefully you will find us greatly improved. (laughs) Um, But how have you been since then? I, I I miss you being first stop in the office in New Orleans. So I just wanted to tell you that. How have you been? Keep them busy, keep them busy. I have a beautiful butterfly garden that I planted during this time of quarantine. Makes me happy. Gives me something to do. I love that. I love the the butterflies. We have a butterfly lady that lives next door to us, so we reap the benefits for sure. So, Alicia, some splashy headlines always, right? Um, these past couple of weeks, but we, that's why we wanted to have you on so you could walk us through some of that science. So just for our listeners and, and a little background, um, there was a recently published coastal study by some some known Tulane researchers, um, and it seemed to make some bold predictions, and the headline was even more bold. So um, you read that, obviously, Alicia, you digested that, and you, you penned a blog, which helps us um, get understand what that study says and doesn't say um, even better. So the, the blog's called us, New Study Emphasizes Need for Swift Action to Save Louisiana's Coast. So Alicia, walk us through what's going on. Yeah, so um, this is a study by some geologists at Tulane University. And what they did is they took borings across um, two sections of the coast and they looked at the history of coastal environments and when marshes were drowned and what the sea level rise rate was at the time. And so the results of the study suggest that when sea level rise rates are faster than three millimeters per year, which is a little over like a tenth of an inch per year, um, coastal marshes drown in a couple of centuries. And when the rates are between six and nine millimeters per year, which is about a quarter to a third of an inch per year, uh, marshes could disappear in multiple decades. 
So Alicia, um, I guess one thing that struck me when the study came out and then the subsequent media coverage was the focus on those rates of sea level rise, right? And that being something that was completely new and like, you know, we hadn't really heard before when doesn't the coastal master plan already include some varying rates of even pretty aggressive uh, sea level rise um, scenarios in its plan? Yeah. So um, in this particular study, they tried to look to the past to understand the future. And then we have the coastal master plan, which tries to predict the future to to make um, our future better. So with the coastal master plan, they're already looking at um, a relative sea level rise rate somewhere between eight to even up to 40 millimeters per year, depending on where you are on the coast. Uh, It does try to take those kind of rates into account looking forward and compensate those rates by doing restoration that lasts long times and actually addresses some of the the main issues why we lose land. Alicia, in the, I think in your blog, you do a good job of addressing relative sea level rise. So walk us through that, that very sciencey term. It is, it is. And it, I think it gets confusing pretty quickly um, for a lot of people. So there's relative sea level rise and then there's worldwide sea level rise. So worldwide sea level rise is sea level rise that's happening across the globe. Um, these days it's a little over three millimeters per year. Um, but relative sea level rise accounts for other things as well. And in here in Louisiana, that means accounting for subsidence. Because of the underlying geology of our area, we are actually sinking um, as sea levels rise. And so the relative sea level rise in Louisiana is some of the fastest in the world. So you you say it, Alicia, too, right? That that is something that we have to keep our eye on here in Louisiana, right? Because this goes back to we're a delta, right? And so that's why we um, sink or subside, right? Yeah, and, and, and actually, like, marshes, coastal marshes, coastal wetlands are really good at keeping pace with sea level rise as long as they actually have the tools to do that. And the tool in this case is sediment coming into the system that can deposit on the marsh surface and increase its elevation relative to the rising seas. Um, we have a situation right now where almost all of our wetlands are cut off from that sediment. And so sea level rise is happening and a lot of marshes are being drowned even today. We have to address that kind of larger problem and get sediment back into the system in order to address that issue. If marshes get enough sediment, they can actually compensate for those rising sea levels quite a bit. And I think you, I think you say in the blog there was a previous study that says that scientifically, right, that we are keeping up with a piece of sea level rise at least here in Louisiana. Yeah, it's actually by the same researcher from this current study. They're showing, um, they had a study, I think it was last year, the year before that actually showed over the short term anyway, our, most of our marshes, 60 to 70% of the marshes in Louisiana are actually keeping pace with relative sea level rise today. In addition to sediment, marshes can actually respond by increasing the productivity of the vegetation itself and kind of compensate. So Right now, the marshes are actually keeping their head above those rising seas. And Alicia, I mean, we want to get into kind of, you know, solutions and where do we go from here in the next segment. But in terms of expectation setting, right, Louisiana's coastal master plan, or I guess the, the one that was updated in 2017, you know, already concedes that, you know, we're no, not going back to the coast that we once had. 
even holding on to the coast that we have today is going to be a challenge. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what the Coastal Master Plan says in terms of managing those expectations and why we need to do the work we need to do in terms of priority prioritization of projects and, you know, putting the most resources where we can for the like greater good of this whole region. Mm -hmm. So one of the, one of the real um, innovative things about the coastal master plan is it sets a baseline. That's not about where we've been in terms of our coast or even where we are today, but actually tries to look to the future understand what could happen if we do nothing and then do restoration projects and put them on the landscape to see what you've gained from that. Um, without any coastal restoration, we lose so much land. Even with coastal restoration, even with investment in coastal restoration, we're still going to lose a lot of land. Um, however, with the coastal master plan, you can hold on to something like 800 square miles of land, even under you know, some pretty aggressive sea level rise scenarios. And I mean, it's not just thinking about that 800 square miles, but it's also like really important places on the landscape, right? So the Maurepas land bridge and the Orleans land bridge and like avoiding these scenarios where basically Lake Pontchartrain and Lake Maurepas become this one massive extension of the Gulf. And also thinking about the habitat and the productivity of um, the ecosystems and maintaining that estuary. So there's a lot that goes into that um, 800 square miles and also the need to kind of restore and, and maintain as much of it as possible. So we do want to talk a little bit about where do we go from here? You know, this study emphasizes that, you know, we do confront some pretty dire challenges. So what do we need to do in terms of uh, acting? Um, but we're about to head into a break. So if you don't mind hanging on, Alicia, we'll get to that in the next segment. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM, always available online at deltadispatches.org. And we are chatting the latest science of the Mississippi River Delta with Dr. Alicia Renfro with the National Wildlife Federation. We'll be right back after the break. You're on the ASPN Network. Coastal news for the pelagic-minded. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Shock Abair with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. We're back for our fourth and final segment, and you know what that means, the coastal stat of the week. Over the next 50 years without coastal restoration, as much as $3.6 billion in Louisiana business, residential, and infrastructure assets could be at risk, with an additional $7.6 billion in business disruptions at the national level. Investing in coastal restoration not only reduces businesses' risk of loss, it also provides a consistent flow of funding that supports economic growth and job creation. Those facts came from the restoration FAQs on the MRD website. That and other information is also included. And we're back with one of our, should I say, well, I'm I, I hesitant to use the word favorite, even though let's be honest, I mean, she pretty much is, and most frequent guest, um, Dr. Alicia Renfro, staff scientist with the National Wildlife Federation. So Alicia, we were talking before the break about a new two-lane study that came out and has gotten attention, you know, 
in state as well as nationally about the future of Louisiana's wetlands and what um, that what is in store for them. Um, and you were highlighting some of the science about the rates of sea level rise and how that compares to the coastal master plan. One other important point that the study makes, though, is that we have a window of opportunity to act, correct? So tell us about that window of opportunity, but more importantly, what needs to happen? What do we need to do in this short time frame to ensure we have as much of a sustainable coast for our future as possible? Mm -hmm. So as I was saying before, that coastal wetlands have um, an ability to respond to coastal sea level rise. And so we have an opportunity right now to actually build a better future than we would have otherwise, mostly through putting more sediment back into the coastal marshes so that they can keep pace with sea level rise and also reducing carbon emissions to limit sea level rise as much as possible. Those two things would actually buy us a lot for the future. Um, Now, thankfully, we have a wonderful source of sediment here in Louisiana, the muddy Mississippi River. And so for large parts of the coast, getting that river back to work and putting that sediment back into those marshes is crucial. Um, That steady source of sediment is really the thing that will help marshes hold on for the long term. Yeah, I mean, that's just another uh, important reminder of, you know, the urgency we have to kind of get projects like sediment diversions built. And I know, um, you know, both Mid-Baritaria and Mid-Breton are moving forward. Um, aimed at restoring and maintaining tens of thousands of acres of land in and around Plaquemines Parish, you know, protecting areas from Plaquemines Parish, St. Bernard, Jefferson, Orleans. So um, we'll continue to monitor monitor as those um, projects move forward. But it really kind of talks about what's at stake here in terms of our future and what we need to do with urgency if we're going to kind of stay here for our future. So um, I get I wanted to ask a little bit, you know, one of the things that has come up is, it's important to, um, you know, think about, you know, building wetlands and, um, you know, restoring our buffer, but also trying to limit the rate of sea level rise as much as possible, right? So that means doing everything we can globally to reduce emissions, which I know our organizations are working on um, nationally and globally. Um, and also the state of Louisiana had a recent announcement about, you know, working to kind of lay the foundation to, to do its part to potentially reduce emissions in the future. So tell us a little bit about the emissions and sea level rise piece as well. Yeah, um, one of the big key things in holding on to as much land as we possibly can is actually to reduce what threats we have in the future. And a big part of that is sea level rise. Um, By reducing carbon emissions, we can limit the amount of sea level rise we do see in the future. And that is an important component that the Coastal Master Plan mentions, but doesn't capture fully because it's trying to react to this larger issue. But by working together, we can actually reduce the sea level rise we um, could see in the future and hold on to a lot more wetlands than we would have otherwise. So, Alicia, can I I ask you a a science perspective question? You know, this the study, this study in particular makes a prediction um, based on something that happened in the past. Like how often do people go back and check to see if that prediction came true or like, can you walk us through kind of the, I don't know if that's a methodology, but the, the, like this idea that people are predicting something and how that's based and those kinds of things. Yeah, like looking back to the past can tell us something about the present and the future. Um, Paleoceanography, paleogeology um, can be really um, helpful in that way. However, oftentimes because you're you're looking at a core, you're capturing like a moment in time and 
you might not understand all the nuance and all the other things that are happening. And so sometimes things that we predict, such as the the loss of the Chandelier Islands, don't actually come to pass. They actually do um, maintain themselves in a way that we might not have understood all the processes when we look back to the past, but in the present, we can combine that knowledge and actually understand how those systems hold on for the long term. So it's, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, like the chandeliers are a great example of like, they continue to show recovery, even though they kind of predicted this, you know, future without action or or that would look bad, but also like in the other respect, another basin, right. Is East Timbalier was one that they worked for years and years and years to try to recover and save, but, but they could not. Right. Alicia. Yeah, yeah, the East Timber Island restoration, um, there was a lot of work that was put into it, but at the end of the day, they realized that they couldn't restore it for the long term, and they decided to make the smart, scientifically informed decision to walk away and actually put their money in places where it would do more good over the long term. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, I'm sure, a tough decision, but like you said, leading with science and also thinking about you know, the real reality that we face um, in terms of the future. I think one thing that um, I know we've blogged about in the past, and, and I don't think most folks are aware of this, but um, in terms of science and data, Louisiana has a pretty robust sea level rise monitoring system, correct? And, including like one of the most advanced, I think, in the U.S., maybe the world. So tell us a little bit about that system and, and how it helps inform these decisions. Yeah, so in Louisiana, we have what's called the Coastal Reference Monitoring System, or CRIMS. Um, it's a um, coastwide system. It has some, I can't even remember it. They add more, they add more stations all the time. It's like 400 more stations across the coast monitoring various things like water level. They do some other measurements that actually gives us a snapshot of what's happening on our coast in a spatial way over time but also helps us understand the restoration we put into place or the restoration we want to do and see how that might actually impact the coastline. This is an innovative monitoring system that I've never heard of anybody else having anything that touches anywhere near it. So wait, Alicia, you can, you can, people can access it too. And they occasionally do trainings, right. On, on how to do that. They do. They do. And you're going to call me out on what the, what the website is. <laughs> no, no, no. That's okay. We'll be sure to share with our listeners when that comes about, but they do it rather regularly, you know? So, well, Alicia, our time here is almost done. Um, I am in charge of a fun question today for you. Um, I've been, I've been like thinking about, um, you know, kind of these past few months and, and lots of people found escapes in like funny Twitter accounts or, you know, um, maybe like started reading romance novels or, or watching Hallmark movies. Do you have a favorite escape um, during these kind of stay at home times? My guilty pleasure. I cannot <laughs> wait. <laughs> oh, Golden Girls. I have been watching the Golden Girls nonstop. <laughs> It is. I love the Golden Girls. I mean, it's lovely. (laughs) I I sent one of my best, oldest, dearest friends in Miami a deck of um, Golden Girls playing cards from Flirty Girls. So, yeah. So maybe, Alicia, for your birthday. (laughs) I'm going to make Jacques answer this question, too, real quick, because I can't wait to hear his. 
Oh, my, uh, I thought you were going to ask which golden girl I, I was. <laughs> we all know which one you are. <laughs> um, yes. But um, no, I think my favorite or kind of quarantine escape has just been being outside and like riding my bike and running as much as possible. You know, I go to Crescent Park religiously and just kind of being on the river and looking out at the cityscape has just has helped, right? So I think that's a common theme, being outside, being outdoors and being active as much as possible before it gets too hot. I'm going to give the real answer for Jacques too. He um, has a book club with some of his friends and they they read silly books together. (laughs) Right. Although no one read the last book because we're just mentally exhausted. So we ended up just chatting and now we're doing a movie club instead. So we're, we're trying to evolve with the times. Well, speaking of times, we are out of time. So another great show with two wonderful guests. Thank you for tuning in. And we will be back next week on Delta Dispatches.